0: Tonight's talk is about whether you're trying hard enough or not. How do you know? It's very clear that effort is required to liberate the mind. The forces of delusion, the habitual conditioning that we all have, is pretty dense. And in fact, this idea of wise effort, this call for wise effort, is part of the Eightfold Path. It's the sixth step. And it's the beginning part of the concentration section of the Eightfold Path, and it's followed by wise mindfulness and wise concentration. And if you consider that it is wisdom that liberates us from delusion, you can see why these three are clustered together as the concentration section of the path. Because in order to have the capacity for deep and sustained seeing, there needs to be wise concentration. And in order for that to develop, there needs to be wise mindfulness. But in order for there to be wise mindfulness, there needs to be wise effort. In fact, there's a particular kind of effort that's called forth uh, virya, which is a particularly kind of courageous effort that we're being called to make. But there's an interesting thing about energy or virya, effort, which is that it can be in either wholesome or unwholesome forms. So consider, if you will, uh, energy, effort. That's certainly there when you think about, for instance, the kind of activities that are done to... Gain wealth by uh, stripping the earth of resources, leaving a mess behind, or putting pollutants into the air that basically destroy our little blue nest. It can be unwholesome, but there's no denying there's plenty of effort and energy going into that. It's just that it's unskillful. But there's effort and energy that we need to apply in a skillful kind of way in order to walk the path and find the freedom of mind that we're seeking when we undertake practice. So there's a particular kind of effort that's being called for. And it's the kind that's skillful. And this is often taught in terms of talking about the four great endeavors, meaning the effort to prevent unwholesome uh, states from arising, uh, the effort to weaken and abandon unwholesome states once they have arisen. And unwholesome states here are meant those states that come out of uh, greed, hatred, and delusion, and which are states of suffering. So that's the abandoning uh, and uh, preventing part of the four great endeavors that are uh, addressed towards unskillful states. But there's the skillful part of it too, which is the effort to rouse wholesome states of mind, to bring them into being, and then the endeavor to strengthen them and maintain them once they have arisen. So in a certain kind of way you would say mindfulness meditation is the practice of doing those four things. Not necessarily directly in terms of focusing the mind on manufacturing states or prohibiting states, but just through the application of mindfulness skillfully and in a continuous way towards what is arising in the mind. But this exertion to bring forth wholesome states of consciousness which can be directed towards the liberation of the mind, needs to work with other parts of the Eightfold Path. In particular, wise view and wise intention. So none of these steps are are stand-alone activities, they all reflect the other parts of the path. They all incorporate the perspective of the other parts of the path. So then there's the question, so how do we do the above? How do we encourage the wholesome and discourage the unwholesome? In a sense, you could say the Buddha's methodology is all about this. And this is one of the things about Buddhism that's very interesting is that it has very practical, systematic, methodical ways of actually doing this. It goes beyond the injunction that you get in, in many uh, religious systems where there's an exhortation to just be good, but there's no, not necessarily a lot of help um, in learning how to do that exactly other than through white-knuckling it. But here we have this system of working with the mind in order to reshape its conditioning and to clear up its misunderstandings. And in fact, freeing the mind from foundational misconceptions is the essence of what's being done with insight meditation practice. So an important thing to know about this whole system of practice is, it doesn't create enlightenment. It doesn't make it happen. But it addresses the obscurations, the obstacles, the covering over of this innate potential of mind. So in this process, of course, we get very familiar with all these obscurations. And the field of practice is very largely the field of touching these states in a very uh, interested, receptive, and nonviolent way, hopefully. But of course, on the cushion, it's not always that way. Not not at all. So this requires uh, a willingness to contact these states and to know them, and to open to them, and to relate to them in a skillful kind of way. So in order to do this, effort is required, and the Buddha talks about this over and over again. He's very frequently exhorting people to make make effort, even to make heroic kinds of effort. And he's very clear uh, about the perspective that no one can purify the mind of another meaning we don't have the capacity to do this for someone else, nor can someone else do this for us. This is truly an inside uh, job. This is something that we need to take uh, responsibility for. So we need to focus and apply ourselves and make choices and follow through and engage with our experience in order to wake up. So this sustained effort is a necessary part of practice. But how do we know when we're making wise effort? Because we can be making plenty of effort, but it's not necessarily wise. And there's a story uh, in the the life of the Buddha that kind of points to this. There was a young monk who was apparently a relatively recent recruit who came from a rather refined background. And in fact, in his previous existence, he was a musician, and I don't think he had to really work for a living, but anyway, he played music, and he loved it and was good at it. and he took some meditation instruction and tried to put it into practice, and he was doing walking meditation, and it wasn't going very well, but he was trying really hard. He was completely committed to doing it, and in fact, he was walking on this rather rocky path, and it cut the bottom of his feet, so he was bleeding as as he was walking. And someone came along and noticed this, I think it might be, have been his sister actually, uh, who saw this and saw that he kept trying to do the walking but it wasn't going well and he was bleeding and it was, and went to the Buddha and said, um, you know, this bhikkhu, can you go see him? Can you have a chat with him about how how it's going and so the Buddha went to to talk with his uh, his monk and he assessed the situation and saw what was going on and he also realized in some way that. This young man had a history of playing music and so he came up with the exact image to talk to him about the situation, as the Buddha often seemed to do, and he said "Oh um, well, how's it going?" <laughs> and they had a little a little chat about that, and the Buddha says, "Well isn't it?" Um, the case that you uh were a musician and he says yes and he says well when you were a musician how was it when the instrument was tuned too tight and he said well it was out of out of tune lord and he said well how was it with the instrument when it was tuned too loose and he said out of tune, Lord. And he said, just so. There is a way of making effort that's not too tight and not too loose and is in tune. And when they had this conversation, the monk got the fact that he was trying in a way that was unskillful. He was completely committed to it he had incredible resolve, but it wasn't working the way that he was going about it. And so he revised his approach. And then of course, the good thing, the good thing happened. So the moral of the story is there's a middle way of making effort, which is when the mind is sensitively tuned to what's actually happening as we make effort. Because just as we know, the only way that you can tell whether a string is in tune or not is by listening to it. Paying attention to the feedback. What happens when you pluck it? How does it sound? Is it flat? Is it sharp? And going from there. Now, given this talk about wise effort, I always have a, a little cautionary in my mind when I tell Western people that they need to make effort. And the cautionary is always around this point of our cultural conditioning and how we actually hear the exhortation to make serious effort. So it's very easy to hear this as, well, I need to try harder. That this is about trying harder. And if we try harder, things will go better from our perspective. But of course, this perspective is very much shaped by our cultural values and assumptions, and so it's kind of an inherited view So to talk about cultural values and assumptions in dharma practice, the first point to make is that, of course, when we come to dharma practice, we come with a whole boatload of existing views, assumptions, and beliefs. This is a kind of baseline orientation that we bring to the task. And it forms the view with which we approach Things, including learning about the Dharma. So, one interesting thing about cultural views and inherited beliefs is they're generally invisible to us, unless we have an occasion, for instance, to be in a completely different cult, completely different cultural environment, and we start we realize, oh, they don't they don't look at it that way at all. But generally, these views are very much embedded and uh, unconscious. So, we also have individual views, of course, but they're very much influenced by the milieu in which we grow up and function. So, what are some of these? Well, there's the belief that we're in control of or should be in control of what we experience. Self-reliance, self-control, autonomy, individualism, get a grip on things, make it happen, don't be passive. And of course, we also have a consumer orientation towards experience? Is it, does it measure up to standards? Is it good enough? Is it a good enough kind of experience? Is it, you know, at least Macy's grade? <laughs> or is it job lots? <laughs> So there's also a desire to protect and enhance the egoic self-sense. And this is very much tied up with controlling what we experience too. And then a major one, which I think we share probably with most humans, is the assumption that pleasant is the most reliable and important measure of the value of ex- experience and the standard of success is what is happening pleasant that's that's a whole <laughs> a whole Dharma talk or two right there so these are part of the way we go about thinking and proceeding with things and it's often the approach that's in play when we, do Dharma practice as well, because we drag this set of assumptions along with us. But there's a problem with this if we remember that the Eightfold Path is a hologram. And we consider the second step on it, wise intention, which should really be guiding the line of the effort that's being made. These first two steps on the path, wise view and wise intention, they're basically laying out the direction of the whole endeavor, including meditation practice. So these intentions are very different from our cultural view. Wise intention, renunciation. the letting go of pursuit of the pleasant as the point of things, the cultivation of loving-kindness and compassion, of harmlessness, as a description of the kind of thoughts, words, and deeds we want to incline the mind towards in order to develop these aspects. So if these aren't in direct opposition to our cultural views and assumptions and values, I think you will probably agree they're at least at a right angle to it. So if we can realize that we're being called on to direct effort in a way that's, that's really quite different, that can be very helpful. But in many cases, people are completely unconscious of the cultural view that they bring to what they're attempting to do. And it gets incorporated into how they proceed and then there's some interesting side effects with that. Meaning that they would then practice with the desire to gain control of the situation through effort. In other words, mastery as an act of will. So I'm going to will it, I'm going to get it, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it happen. So then there's also the consumer orientation towards practice, which involves turning things in a direction so that you can get goodies. You know, whether that's uh, blissful states or pleasant vedana or whatever, but turning it, looking for that, trying to get that there's the desire to uh enhance or protect the self sense through dharma practice right you know i've got to do this you know i know i can do it or i've got to show them or you know i've got to make it happen or this is my last chance or you know i want to hold my head up high or you know we get we get drawn into these Things because they're part of how we normally go about thinking of things. And then there's the assumption that pleasant's the most reliable and important measure of how the practice is going, which is a very unfortunate assumption because if the practice basically is designed. To bring the mind into contact with the way that suffering is created in order for it to be released, for the mind to think that because it's experiencing suffering, there's an indication that it's doing something wrong, is pretty deluded. It's like saying, I wanna, I wanna. Take the cure, but I don't want to ever experience the disease. It doesn't seem to work like that. So if these kinds of assumptions are there and we don't see it and they're operating there, then it's a formula for frustration and a lack of progress if it isn't seen and made conscious. And then this becomes... The kind of standards by which we measure whether or not the practice is working, and of whether or not we're making enough effort. It's always an interesting thing when, when the mind burps up the thought, it's not working. So, an interesting statement because there's so many embedded assumptions in that. Working, what would working be? What would it? What would it look like? There's a lot packed into that. The mind is supplying some kind of picture there that it very often can't even uh, touch with consciousness. So if we don't see these things, then we are practicing and the mind is looking at things like How to measure, how to measure how it's going, how to measure how I'm doing. Well, am I getting out of it what I want? Does what is happening meet my expectation? Does it conform to a view or a map or a previous experience? So we do a lot of attempting to recreate Previous experiences and practice. Have you ever noticed that? And there can be some skill in that. You know, there's some skill in that. Uh, yes, it's true that if I can let go of trying to control and completely suppress restlessness, it's true that you know, uh, giving it a big space is more skillful than you know trying to contract and suppress it. So some of these noticings are very skillful. And some of them are a little bit more magical, you know. If I have oatmeal in the morning, <laughs> you know, I notice, I, you know, and maybe it's true. Maybe there's an association, but but some of it to me seems a little bit like those um, Bud Light commercials. You ever see those Bud Light commercials that point to various sports superstitions people develop about? What they can do at home to make their team work, you know, like turn the label labels on the beer bottles all in the same direction, or you know, wear one color sock and another color sock, and right. So you know, a little bit of our magical thinking gets involved with this, trying to recreate previous experiences. It's like we're trying to follow the crumbs backwards to pick up where we left off. The last time we were on the three-month retreat, get back there. So we may also measure things by seeing if we're in control of what's happening, if we feel like we're on top of it. So there's what's happening and then then there's a somebody on top of it. And we, we can start looking at whether or not things meet our standards. Now, how are we stacking up against the imaginary yogis? Other imaginary yogis. Oh, that guy walks so slow. He's just, if I could only be that mindful, if I could only do that. So we're grading ourselves on a curve, but we really don't have enough information to grade ourselves on a curve. Because very often, and this is one of the fascinating things you'll notice after you come off a long retreat, like the three-month retreat, when you actually talk to people that you've practiced with for weeks and have developed a whole set of assumptions about them and how it's going and you actually talk to them, it's nothing like what you imagine. The people that you think were, you know, so peacefully resting in deep samadhi, we'll be talking about things like, you know, childhood memories of trauma that were coming up, and how they could hardly stand to be in the hall, and you know, it's just very different. It's complete projection from our minds. Very often, we could also measure things by by seeing whether or not we're having a pleasant experience and uh, whether it feels good. So this is the way we generate the internal report card. And we often make effort along the lines of its categories trying to improve the grade by using these measurements. And if those are the measurements and the way we respond to the desire to get a good mark is by making more and more effort to try to make those things happen, to make things pan out in those very terms. You get more and more miserable. You get tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter tighter trying to make something happen. And this is the interesting point because very often we don't need to try harder at all. We don't need to make more effort because this trying harder thing is what we do. This is what we tend to do to try to gain control. We try to edit the present moment. We try to make what's happening right now in the future conform to our preferences. We follow after what's pleasant, push away what's unpleasant, and zone out to neutral. Which is to say our habitual conditioning is already working really hard. It's working constantly as a matter of fact. Struggling with reality as it actually presents itself. So if we're going to look at what kind of constant effort we're already making, we're trying to edit, shape, revise, remake, reform, secure, hold on to, pursue, capture, improve, own, control, ignore, shut out, redirect, and otherwise govern the arising of experience. So this is a really fatiguing endeavor and suffering-inducing endeavor, but we can't say it's a lack of effort. There's plenty of effort going on all the time. But, you know, this working hard wouldn't be a problem if it actually resulted in what we're trying to have occur if it actually worked in the direction of our happiness and liberation. But the problem is that it doesn't work because our preferences aren't what are determinative. Things happen because of causes and conditions and not because of our will. So attempting to control reality as it arises is futile as well as stressful. But aside from that, (laughs) it's a a great strategy. (laughs) So then, if that's not the strategy, if that's that's not the way we can do it, then what is? What is the kind of effort that's being discussed? So we should consider the role of non-clinging, Letting go and surrender in our understanding and practice. Now, depending on your temperament, when you hear the words, letting go and surrender, there may be considerable aversion to this. I myself am not a natural surrenderer. All right. So we can get this really messed up in our mind with it sounding like uh, giving up, getting rolled over, being defeated, becoming some sort of passive lump of a person who just lets life run over them, being weak and unwilling to take action, maybe lacking in courage and initiative. Does anybody have any of those resonances come up in their mind? Yeah, I'm hearing some laughing. Letting go, what are you talking about? Somebody's got to exercise control around here. But upon further consideration, the the view (coughs) revised itself. And I came to understand that that isn't what was being meant. And in fact, you don't lose any of your agency potential at all. So I came to understand that letting go referred to the release of futile resistance to things as they actually exist and manifest which means opening up to what was happening now and allowing it to move as it was going to anyway. Acting in a way that was sensitively connected to this creative vitality and in wise relationship to it. So non-suppressive of and non-resistant to and connected with the dynamic movement of life as it arises in our direct experience moment-to-moment. Letting go means operating from the base of clear seeing and not from specific preferences that are at variance with what's actually happening. Let's see. I can go with reality or I can go with what I want to have happen. Reality or what I want? Reality or what I want? I'll go with what? And we do, I mean, we do that all the time. We do it all the time. We're always heading there. But this letting go means actually seeing the Dharma. Seeing the truth of the present moment and taking that as the starting point, the foundation for action, rather than acting from conditioned desires that are fighting with the present manifestation of the truth. Let's start with reality. It means moving away from a pattern of resistance to reality to a balanced opening to it to sensing the grain of things, and then going from there. Actually listening to the note before you decide how, how you're playing around with the key that tunes. Listen to it. So if we were going to say what we need to let go of, what do we need to let go of? the answer basically is is suffering, which is the painful pattern of attempting to control, fabricate, avoid, and pursue that's operant on both subtle and obvious levels of the mind. So this very culturally conditioned pattern of trying to override Reality is suffering. This is craving. And we start to let go of suffering through coming to understand delusion, which causes craving for things to be in a certain way which they can't be in the moment. Ajahn Chah, of whom you've probably heard much from Taraniya, is one of her main teachers, has often been quoted as saying, if you get let go a little, you get a little peace. And if you let go completely, dot dot dot. But it's really big jump to let go completely, isn't it? It's not that we can do it by an act of will. You ever hear that, that expression when somebody stops for directions and they're, and they're told, you can't get there from here. <laughs> you can't get there from here. We can't really hop directly into letting go, even if we have some sort of grasp of what's being said, because our conditioning is very deep. Now, there's a deep, perhaps instinctual, clutching that makes it difficult to surrender. Even when we want to, these conditioned habits of gripping and holding on are really strong. So what to do? How do you bridge that? Let's consider some of the letting go which might be possible which would be places where it would be easier, easiest for us to see our holding and resistance and to begin to release it. And so where, where could we look to see some of these habitual places? Where might they lie? Well perhaps they might lie right there in the manifestations of some of the major cultural and individual delusions I described in the earlier part of the talk. Can we make these conscious when they're present? We could become aware that letting go of, something, of wanting something different involves being willing to come into the here and now, regardless of what's happening. Not choosing, here and now, regardless of what's happening. Accepting what's arising in experience. Accepting that it is arising in experience. Accepting even your grumpy resistance to it arising in experience. Opening to things as they are without voluntarily trying to edit them. You will, of course, see the mind wanting to edit them. You will see the mind attempting to edit them. These are really important learnings, just the seeing of these very deep tendencies of mind. We could work at letting go of expectations, meaning thinking and wanting something preferred or predictable, and this one involves becoming aware of desires and wants that are at variance with what's actually present opening to these desires as objects of meditation. So it's not about saying it's bad to want something else other than what's happening. It's just suffering. Can the mind see the arising of that wanting something different as an object of meditation? Oh, this is desire, or this is thirsting, this is craving, this is insisting. we could practice in an open-ended and allowing way and notice when there's an expectation of familiarity. This is an interesting one. Do we expect from moment to moment in a sitting? Or in, uh, between uh, one sitting to another or one practice day to another that somehow it should be the same? Or kind of like the way it was going, it should continue to go that way because we've been trying and we've been paying attention. And, and then all of a sudden something shifts and it's really different and usually not, not in a way we're liking very much. We can notice when there's the desire or tendency to control or edit or direct. Opening to this tendency as it's happening as a meditation object. Oh, I want I want the breath to be clearer. Oh, I want the uh, I want the thoughts to go away. Oh, I would like to have that that tranquility. I don't want the restlessness. I don't want the anxiety. I don't I don't want the fear. Let me see what could I do? How can I get rid of it? Seeing that movement of mind to try to implement that priority, that makes that movement of mind a meditation object. It becomes something that you further develop, mindfulness and equanimity, by contacting. We could work on undercutting some of these uh, overlays to practice by letting go of a fixed self-view. And this involves noticing when things are experienced in relationship to me, especially when there's a desire to change them to be as wanted. Is there a strong me sense in the moment? It's okay if there is. It's not wrong. It's not bad. It's just the arising of me. It's interesting to to observe over time, when the me kind of comes in there really strong. when When it asserts itself, when it feels particularly vivid. You can also notice when there's a feeling of a threatened self that needs to be protected, or which needs to control is something happening and now there's a feeling of threat. Oh that 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 can't happen, you know. If I if I move in response to that pain, that means I'm a I'm a wimp. I don't have the kind of resolve that it takes to really do this practice or there are a lot of different versions of this, or I'm going to sit here being flooded by traumatic childhood memories, and I'm just going to sit here, and I'm just going to be with it, because if I don't sit here, and if I am turn away from this, then I'm just chickening out, and I've got to gut it out, and I've got to be there, and hold my feet to the fire, and that big me arising in the middle. Notice the arising of the big me and the the stream of advice that comes forth from the mind when that's present. So a takeaway from that is when the, the me is secreting a lot of thoughts in that kind of way, those are not necessarily, that's not necessarily the best practice coach that's talking to you. (laughs) But you can make these and other manifestations of the self-sense an object of meditation when it arises. That's a different thing, isn't it? There's the sense doors. Within the mind door, there's intentions and a lot of other things. And within that mind door arises as a phenomenon, the arising of self-sense. It arises, it stands, maybe it throws a little fit, (laughs) it passes away. Notice through the day, it's not equally strong all the time. There may be times, even extended periods of time, when it's pretty dormant or sometimes even completely absent. So it's not something that we need to suppress or try to get rid of. It's just a conditioned arising like every other conditioned arising. It's not bad. It's not unskillful. Do we get lost in it? Do we move the whole show into the eye and operate out of it? When that happens, that's Dukeville. So this is a very paradoxical thing that the very act of getting free from craving can become a stumbling block to liberation. Because if we're unwilling or unable to acknowledge in a very neutral and matter-of-fact way that craving is in fact present, we move away from liberation. So this trying to get rid of craving by an act of will is futile. And the Buddha really saw this during his own period of extreme asceticism, right? When, where he was going to like stamp it out, he was going to torture his body and discipline his mind and he was going to get rid of, you know, craving and he was going to get rid of pleasant and He worked himself into quite a state, right to the point of death. So trying to get rid of craving by some act of will doesn't work. To react to the pain of craving with craving for its departure is a little bit like trying to get rid of a hangover caused by drinking too much by having a big old drink. So the key understanding is that liberation is found through wisdom and insight into how things are and how they work together, into causation. Coming to understand what leads to what. In order to see that, the mind needs to be closely connected with reality, and in particular to the reality of its own workings. Learning how to understand how things work together is more of a process of learning how to see and relax and open up to a fuller and fuller palette of direct experience. And when this happens consistently and at deep levels of the body and the mind, the delusion cluster, if we can call it that, the delusion cluster, cluster, relaxes and releases itself. It releases itself. And the I that wanted to get rid of the I doesn't direct this. Rather that capital I is a part of what's seen and known, and is, along with everything else, let go of as not-self. So then the question is well if the i is seen and understood to be like everything else and is let go of and is seen as not self then what is it what remains what happens what is it what Isn't it? What? There's not the word. But this is for you to find out for yourself. So to circle back to the initial question of the talk, are you trying hard enough perhaps to allow the mind to take in what's been said and reconsider the merits of practicing in a way that is allowing and surrendered. So what I wish for you is the Ability through your own wise effort to understand some of the discernments because all that uh, effort and energy is a terrible thing to waste.